On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you may be seated. Thank you, Isaac. Well, welcome to Disciples Church. It's good to see all of you this evening. Uh, my name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to get to open up the word with you and for you this evening. And so, uh, so glad that you're here, especially on such a beautiful night. Glad you're able to make it up. Glad to see so many faces. Uh, turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Mark chapter 4. Mark 4. If you remember when we began the study of Mark, which um, seems like a very long time ago now, um, going on about six, about five months ago or so, six months ago, um, when we very first began to talk about this book and the reason that it's been given to us, we talked a little bit about its history. We talked about the fact that it was really written to force the reader to come face to face with Jesus. Mark is the first of the Gospels. It's the very first introduction that the, that the world would have had to these stories of Jesus Christ. And so Mark is recording for us um, eyewitness accounts and also the eyewitness accounts of other disciples, specifically Peter, who, who is ministering alongside. He records these things for us because he wants you to encounter Jesus. That you cannot encounter Jesus and move on unchanged but that as you hear the teaching, as you see his works, as you observe his life, you realize very quickly that his claims demand an answer. And that aim of Mark is as relevant in this moment today as it was 2,000 years ago. See, the world by and large, particularly in our, our modern Western culture, really has no idea who the real Jesus is. And culturally, that's a shift. It's a, it's a vast transformation that's happened very, very quickly within our country in particular and throughout Western civilization at large. And more startling than that, perhaps, there are many people who claim the name of Jesus Christ who don't seem to really know who he is either. So just to give a couple of examples of this, I mean, just in this last week, as I was reading different reports and different uh, articles and things, you've had nominally Christian organizations who've put Jesus forward as a symbol, as a person of color who died at the hands of powerful oppressors. Okay. And that's the limitation, really, of their understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And alternately to that, there's a growing movement that wants to see the removal of Christianity from the public square because they view Jesus as a symbol of colonialism or a symbol of oppression. And we see bumper stickers that claim Jesus was a Republican or Jesus was a Democrat or Jesus was a community organizer or Jesus was fill in the blank. 
And in a lot of ways, Jesus has become a totem upon which we can put our views, our ideals, and our criticisms. And before we begin to condemn other people for that action, understand that we are all tempted to do the very same thing. And the way that you can test this for yourself is you can begin to ask the question, does my view of Jesus, does my understanding of who God is, does that view of Jesus ever actually challenge my perspectives or my ideals? Or does Jesus always agree with me? Because if your version of Jesus just reflects your own values and your own ideals, there is certainly a possibility that you have constructed your own private idol in the name of Jesus. And the problem with a God of your own creation is that it will have the same flaws and the same shortcomings that you do. So in an increasingly skeptical post-Christian culture, all of this should cause us to take stock and reckon with the nature of the historical Jesus. See, Mark writes to answer the question, who is Jesus really? I mean, who is this unknown man from a backwater village in a backwater country? See, Mark writes to answer those questions for us. And the question that we need to begin to ask ourselves as we look at what Mark writes for us is how should Jesus' life, his work, and his teaching actually affect us? And the famous story that Isaac just read for us a moment ago is certainly one that demands a response. And in the portion of Scripture that we're going to look at over the next several weeks, we're going to see the authority of Jesus on display in ways that absolutely must be reconciled with our worldview and perspective. In other words, you cannot claim Jesus as an icon. You cannot claim him as a teacher. You cannot claim him as prophet if you do not also claim him as God. And to do so would put the historical reckoning of Jesus that's in front of us in contrast with our own perspective of him. So in these coming verses, we're going to see Jesus Christ's authority over creation, over the spiritual world, over illness, and over death itself. And Mark records for us here the eyewitness testimony. Beginning in verse 35, here's what he writes. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, that's Jesus to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. Now notice to begin with in this text, um, there's a lot of obscure details in these verses, if you're paying attention. There, there's details that don't really affect the outcome of the story. They don't really push along the narrative of what's happening. But if you remember back when we began, when we began to address this chapter um, in March, Jesus had gotten into a boat to begin to address the crowd on the shore. The crowds had grown overwhelming. They were constantly pressing in on Jesus. He's standing along the shoreline. You can kind of imagine Jesus standing right along the water's edge, and as the crowd press in further and further to see him. He finds himself kind of stepping back until he hits water. And so finally he says to the disciples, we need to find a boat and I'll push out a little bit from shore and that's where I'll do my teaching from. And if you've been with us as we've been studying chapter four, all of that teaching on the parables has come from Jesus when he was on this boat. 
And so in verse 36, it says the disciples took him just as he was. In other words, he's already in the boat, and they're going to head off across the shore. It mentions as well that there were other boats that were around him. Jesus had been teaching all day long. That's recorded for us in Mark chapter 4. He is utterly exhausted. And so Jesus says, let's cross the Sea of Galilee. We need to catch up on some rest. We need to get away from the crowds. We need a break. And so the question then that I would pose to you is this, why is there this level of detail? I mean, why does Mark mention these kind of obscure things about the fact that Jesus was already in the boat and that there were other boats around him? See, there really would be only one reason to include those facts, not because they move the narrative or because they add color to the story. They're simply the factual accounting of what happened. See, the temptation from a modern reading of this passage and particularly of an incredible story like this, might be to view it as a legend or a myth. That this is somehow how the legend of Jesus grew. But as we'll read throughout the story, it doesn't read that way. There's all kinds of little details and seemingly insignificant pieces of information that point to the fact that this must have been an eyewitness account. So as had been their custom when they grew tired, they pushed off from shore. They're going to head across the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we pick up the story in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, that is Jesus, was in the stern asleep on the cushion. So the Sea of Galilee is a unique body of water. It's relatively shallow as far as lakes go, and, it's, and it sits very low geographically. It's the second lowest lying body of water in the world behind the Dead Sea. And what makes it so interesting is not only is it a low-lying low, low uh, body of water, and not only, um, not only is it very shallow, but on the sides of it, there are 9,000-foot peaks that rise up. So this has been known historically as a place where massive storms would occur because cool winds would push in off of those cliffs. They'd push out uh, over the water and the the warmth coming up from from the sea would meet the cold air coming down from the mountains and it made for these fantastic storms. In fact, the word that's translated in our Bibles as windstorm is the same word that the Greeks would have used for a hurricane. This is an unusually violent storm. And the storm grew so quickly that water begins to crash into the boat. I mean, imagine the scenario. You're pushing out, let's say you're halfway across the Sea of Galilee when the storm kicks up. You're not close enough to land to get there quickly. And the water starts pouring in so fast and the waves are so high that the boat is beginning to fill with water. The disciples are trying to bail the water out as quickly as they can, but they couldn't keep up. Now just think again about who these men are. These disciples are blue-collar guys, and several of them by profession were fishermen. And not only were they fishermen, but they were fishermen on this very lake. These men knew these waters. Undoubtedly, they had been out on the sea before in storms. But imagine how bad the storm must have been for them to react in fear the way that they did. Imagine how bad the storm must have been for these men who had been professional fishermen to be terrified. And remember as well that it was Jesus himself who invited them and who initiated this trip. This whole situation had been sovereignly ordained to happen. And judging from the response of the disciples, it's safe to assume that they thought their proximity to Jesus 
would equal their safety. I mean, after all, they knew that he was special. They'd already seen him throw throw demons out of demon-possessed people. They'd already seen him restore those who were sick. They'd already seen him do amazing things. They knew that he was special. But now, as they're trying to get this water out of the boat, as they're trying to maintain their own safety and health and their own lives, Jesus is nowhere to be found because Jesus is sleeping in the boat. So the disciples run to Jesus, verse 38, it says this, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, you can hear the fear and the accusation in their voices. I mean, perhaps what bothered them as much as the imminent danger in which they found themselves was the response of Jesus. How in the world could this guy be sleeping? Doesn't he care about us? Doesn't he love us? After all, these men had abandoned everything to follow him. Where was the reciprocal love? In their moment of need, he's sleeping. See, these men are truly afraid. Look at the language they use. They said, teacher, master, we are dying. See, all of this reminds us that what determines your response to a situation that you can't handle is how capable you believe God is to handle it. When you find yourself in difficult moments in life, when you find yourself at wit's end, when you find yourself confused or frustrated or scared, when you're terrified, you feel alone, you feel abandoned, you feel mistreated, in those moments, what's stirring up in your heart? Despite everything that they knew about the person of Jesus, despite everything that they'd seen him accomplish, despite everything that they had just heard him teach about, about the kingdom of God through these parables, despite all of that, in that moment, in a moment where they were unable to handle the situation themselves, they failed to believe that God could handle it. And their fear, in some sense or another, was rooted in their surprise. They hadn't expected what came across their path, but they also neglected to realize that Jesus wasn't surprised at all. And instead, they were fearful because in the heat of the moment, they thought that Jesus either didn't care or was incapable of intervening. I'm going to just ask you for you to consider in your own minds, what are those moments in your life where you've wondered the very same thing? Maybe you knew enough theologically, biblically, academically. Maybe you knew enough to still continue to believe in the person of God and in in the theoretical goodness of Jesus Christ, but in the moment that you can't see it, how does that actually change the way that you believe? And for the disciples, you can see it in their response. They said, do you not care that we are perishing? They begin to accuse him. And again, this speaks, by the way, to the veracity of the story. I don't want to get hung up on this, but I realize that in a modern reading of this, we begin to think, man, this whole story sounds so fantastical. It sounds so improbable. You're telling me that a man somehow stilled the sea? But remember where this account came from. Mark is most likely recording the eyewitness account of Peter himself. 
Peter was on the scene. He encountered it all that day, and there were no, there's no doubt that those details were burned into his mind. He remembered in verse 36 that there were other boats present. He remembered that Jesus was asleep in the stern. He remembered that there was a cushion. He remembered all of these details. And and as if that's not enough, he recounts that the disciples themselves did not have faith in Jesus Christ. Do you understand, by the way, how bad that makes Peter look? And yet he records it for us through the pen of Mark. See, Peter would have had no interest in fabricating a story like this. It wouldn't have helped his career. It wouldn't have helped his prospects in being hired for a job. It did nothing but make him look bad. And remember, too, that Peter ultimately suffered and was persecuted and ultimately was crucified upside down on a cross for preaching the name of Jesus. See, sharing a story like this didn't help Peter's cause or his livelihood. If anything, stories like this sealed his fate. But he was so struck by what was about to happen in this story that he was willing to endure whatever difficulty came his way for the sake of sharing the name of Jesus. And we see what happened as the disciples asked this question, do you not care what happens to us? Verse 39, and he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the word rebuke is an interesting choice in this text. The word rebuke by its very nature means that that you already have power over something. Think of the way that you might rebuke your own child if you have children in this room, right? The reason that you can speak with authority to your child is because you have some responsibility or place of authority in their life. And here's what's remarkable about all this. Jesus doesn't request. He doesn't beg. He doesn't cast some sort of spell or recite some incantation. He declares in this moment, in a rebuke, peace be still. And grammatically, this phrase is interesting because if you were to translate this literally word for word, how it would translate is this, be still and stay still. Without any pleading or any coaxing, Jesus gives the command, verse 39, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He talks to nature and it listens. I mean, this story is so familiar to us that we don't really stop often to think about what this would have looked like. I mean, think about this. He just declares something, speaks something out into the ether. And by virtue of his very declaration, nature itself responds. And as he speaks, the wind stops immediately and the seas die down. I mean, if you've ever seen a storm over a body of water, you know that the after effects of that storm linger in the water. Waves continue to slap and crash. The clouds have to part. The winds have to slowly calm down. That is not what happens here. Because as Jesus utters this phrase, it's as if all of the noise and all of the movement and all of the chaos broke into silence. The suddenness with which this happens. 
The wind stopped and we're told there was a great calm. See, at the command of Jesus, the waves that were at their peak laid down. And the sea went smooth as glass. No more splashing, no more rocking. A placid pond left in its wake. And in Mark's effort to force us to come to grips with the nature of Jesus Christ, he records Jesus doing something that only God could do. Psalm 107, which I'm going to read for you in just a moment, is a fascinating passage because it it gives an account of God himself doing something very similar. I'd like you to listen and notice its relevance to our text today. Here's what it says, Psalm 107, beginning in verse 23. I'll read it out loud for you. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Now the words of Psalm 107 were written exclusively about God himself and they were written nearly a thousand years earlier before the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet here we have Jesus performing the same miraculous feat that according to Psalm 107, God alone can perform. Verse 40. He turns to his disciples and he says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, through this storm, the disciples learned things that they otherwise wouldn't have learned. And there's at least three things we can look at coming out of this text. First, they learned that obedience to God doesn't guarantee temporal safety. I mean, after all, they had just followed Jesus' instruction. He was the one who told them, let's push out into the water, let's go to the other side. They assumed that they would be safe in that moment because they were with him. They assumed that their physical, temporal safety was guaranteed just by virtue of their proximity to Jesus Christ. They assumed that their obedience to Jesus in this moment meant that they would not encounter storms in their life. And how often do we assume the same thing? But God, I'm a Christian. I believe in you. I'm part of a church and I read my Bible and I pray and I talk to my neighbors. I do all of these things. Why is this happening to me? But when Jesus says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? He was making clear to them that their premise was wrong. Their assumption about the way that their life would go was formed on an, 
was formed on an assumption that couldn't be proven out by what Jesus had told them. And that's okay because of what they learned next. Not only does their obedience to God not guarantee temporal safety, but two, Jesus stays with us in the middle of the storms. Now that's kind of an obvious point to draw out, but I want you to think about how this actually looked for the disciples. Because the immediate question is, why in the world would Jesus ever allow them to get into that storm to begin with? But he did it for their benefit. He wanted them to see him as bigger than the storm. And they learned things about Jesus Christ in the storm that they otherwise would never have learned in the calm. See, it was really his grace that led them into that storm. He allowed all of these things to happen in their life to remove any point of stability that they felt outside of him. He wanted them to see that their hope and their security and their safety and their happiness could not be rooted in anything else but him. Think for a moment in your life about the, the particular points of hope and confidence that you have. What are those things in your life where you say, because I have this, I'm happy. Because I have this, I'm safe. Because my retirement is set. Because I have a loving relationship with my children. Because I have my health. Do you understand that there is nothing in your life that could not be removed with a phone call? Where the market drops and your retirement fund is gone. Where the family that you care about so much where there couldn't be something that happens to them, God forbid. See, what Jesus was graciously doing in this moment is prying loose the disciples' fingers from the control of their life. And it was painful and frightening for them. But in his grace, he was then resting their hands on him. Something that could not and would not be taken away. See, the disciples presumed that in God they would be preserved from the strength of an uncomfortable and uncontrollable storm. But they did not realize that the will of God is infinitely stronger and infinitely more uncontrollable. But unlike the seemingly random terror of a storm, the strength of God is moored in his unfailing love for you. Finally, number three, they learned that Jesus remains faithful even in our doubt. If I'm honest with you, this is the point that hung up on me all week. This is the thing that I couldn't shake. I mean, think about, think about the scenario. Jesus has rebuked the storm. He's called out the storm. He's cried out, be still and stay still. And then he turns to the disciples and in his tenderness he says, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? There's a little bit of conjecture there, right? Maybe he could have said it in kind of a harsh manner, but in my imagination at least, Jesus turns to them in a very gentle, kind way, says to them, why are you so afraid? 
I've told you about myself. I've told you about my kingdom that I'm ushering in. I've told you who I am. The things that you've seen me do are incredible. They give evidence and testimony as to who I actually am. Why are you afraid? I've shown myself to be good, to be gracious, to be generous. Trust me. And here's, here's what's amazing to me. He was gracious with them, even though he knew they would continue to struggle and doubt. Because if you continue to read through the book of Mark, what you find is the disciples in this very same scenario, at least emotionally and mentally, that they're in in this very moment. In Mark chapter 6, the disciples go out and witness Jesus feeding 5,000 men, plus women and children, all with a little boy's lunch. They see him take this little lunch and they see him begin to pray over it and break it out into pieces and begin to distribute it. And what seemed like it wouldn't be enough to fill a young boy has now filled a crowd. And you'd think after witnessing something like that that your faith would be unshakable. But just a few verses later, they're out at sea and in a story very reminiscent of this one, a storm kicks up. And they see Jesus walking towards their boat from the shore. And rather than thinking, you know what, this is the same guy who calmed the wind and the sea with his words, they fear because they think it's a ghost. Grown men thinking it's a ghost. And as if that's not enough, the night of Jesus' betrayal He takes these very same men who've seen him in all of these scenarios, he takes them into the garden to pray with him. And as he's praying and weeping and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, these men fall asleep. They can't be bothered to stay awake to pray for the one who would die for their sins. And Jesus' response to them could have been, and rightly could have been, you know what I'm capable of. You've seen me do incredible things, and you still doubt I'm done with you. But he doesn't say that. Jesus knew their doubts would continue, but he responds with gentleness. And I can't tell you how thankful I am that that's how he treats me. think back through all the things God has brought us through. Things my family's walked through, things I've walked through. I think about all of the things that he's just consistently and faithfully shown up and demonstrated his power and demonstrated his love and demonstrated his concern. And yet, just like the disciples, when things start to go bad, I begin to wonder, are you still good? Are you still powerful? Do you still love me? See, our natural response in times of trouble is despair and accusation when it ought to be patience and contemplation. And look how the disciples respond in verse 41. Their response is fascinating. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? When they were in the storm, facing a scenario that they assumed would lead them to their death, they were terrified. 
But after encountering this God-man to whom all nature was submitted, they were filled with great fear. In other words, the fear they had after experiencing the deliverance of Jesus Christ was greater than the fear that they had in the storm. Because the power of God and the will of God cannot be tamed. It is seemingly to the human eye reckless and out of control. It is beyond our comprehension. He does things we don't understand and he doesn't always give us the reason why. And these men then are rightly filled with fear. And I think there's a real irony in this chapter. Then in the first 34 verses of this chapter, Jesus is teaching in parables and he's explaining the meaning to these men in particular. He pulls them aside and he says, now when I told that story, here's exactly what I meant. Here's exactly what I was intending to communicate. This is the plan that God has. This is the kingdom that he's gonna bring about. And yet, after witnessing this incredible act, they still didn't quite get who he was. Who is this that the wind and sea obey? If you remember the moments, the days rather, between Jesus' death and resurrection, do you remember this response of the disciples to what was going on? Jesus had told them that he was going to be murdered for being the Messiah. He had told them, he had foretold his own, his own suffering and his own death. It was just in line with what had happened in Isaiah 53. And after telling them all of these things that were going to happen, and after all of those things happening to a T, He had also told them that he would come again. But do you remember the response of the disciples when Jesus shows back up? They're in a room cowering, scared, emotionally overwhelmed. See, ultimately it would take Jesus' death and resurrection to open their eyes to fully understand. And listen, the beauty is that Jesus loves them and loves you and loves you so extravagantly that he was willing to go that far. That he died on the cross for doubters and for skeptics and for misfits and for critics like us. And he rose from the dead as the ultimate demonstration of his power. And yet we still struggle to trust him in the storms of life. We still struggle to trust in his power and his goodness and his love and his grace. And he still patiently responds, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, tonight, Jesus is coming to you once again. Through the pages of Scripture, he is coming to you and the prodding of the Holy Spirit in your heart, he is inviting you and coaxing you to trust in the one who has the power to speak and have the wind and the waves listen. And if he has the power to silence a storm and calm the sea, what in your life could possibly be out of his grasp? And by the way, I realize that even as I ask that question, 
There are people whose minds go to incredibly turbulent and terrible things. I don't ask that question lightly, pretending that life is easy. But Jesus' demonstration in this moment was to communicate not only to the disciples, but to you as well, that in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the unknown, in the middle of the fear, in the middle of the doubts, and in the middle of the worry, he is still there. Though you may not understand it, and you may not see it. Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. He invites you to discover for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that our only safety is in you. We thank you that even when you allow storms into our life, it's ultimately for our benefit and your glory. God, we thank you that you stay with us in the middle of the storm. And we thank you that even when life seems most tenuous, you're still in control. So we thank you for your patience with us and your grace toward us. God, we thank you that you are inexhaustible. And we pray that as we continue in this life, we would learn to trust in your goodness and your sovereignty. God, I realize that for some, this lesson may be exactly what they need in this moment. But inevitably, all of us will need the truths that we find in this passage. So God, through your spirit, we ask that you would strengthen us to remember and to cling to you in the storms that we're called to endure. God, that we would trust you, hope in you, as the one who's with us in the middle of it. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.